Please open your Bibles to James chapter 4. Our passage for this morning is James chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. There can be little doubt that, biblically, the most sacred of all human institutions is that of marriage. Of course, it probably doesn't feel that way today, given our culture's present attitude towards the institution. After all, no-fault divorce is now legal in all 50 states. Meanwhile, the rising divorce rates of the 1970s and 80s have stabilized, but that's only because cohabitation has skyrocketed. More and more couples are simply deciding to live together before choosing to marry. That's if they ever marry. Uh, For instance, according to one study, between 1965 and 1974, just a little over 1 in 10 women beginning their first marriage cohabited with a significant other before their wedding day. Today that figure is closer to 7 in 10. So it would seem our society's esteem for marriage has clearly declined. And of course, that's only been accentuated by its attempts to even redefine the traditional meaning of marriage. I mean, when you consider the degree to which our society's view of marriage has declined since California became the first no-fault divorce state just less than 50 years ago, it is simply astounding. And yet, make no mistake, as rapidly as our society's view of marriage has eroded in recent years, the Bible is still very clear. Marriage is the most foundational and sacred of all human institutions. It's right there on the opening pages of Genesis. God creates man in Genesis 1, and in the very same breath that God creates him, the Bible describes him as creating them, quote, male and female. It goes straight to human sexuality as something that's significant about us in the very creation of mankind. And of course, God then immediately gives the divine this mandate to, quote, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, which is something that only male and female can accomplish together. We're certainly to get the notion from the very beginning, from the very first chapter of Scripture, that marriage matters. And as if that weren't enough, by the time we get to Genesis 2, God then repeats the matter. The Bible describes the creation of man again, only in greater detail. And this time we discover that the very first thing that God did after making Adam and setting him in charge of the Garden of Eden was to create for him a wife, since, quote, it is not good that the man should be alone. And so God creates a helper for Adam someone who corresponds to him, someone who is different from Adam and yet well-suited for him. And by the end of the chapter, we learn that these two have become, quote, one flesh. And that this concept is to serve as the basis for all subsequent marriages. So not only is marriage among the very first things that's discussed in the Scriptures, but it's also very clearly emphasized. I mean, have you ever thought about the fact that the Bible talks about marriage and twice before it ever gets around to telling us about sin and the promise of a Redeemer? It's as if God is going out of His way to tell us, this institution matters to me. It is the building block of all human society. It's foundational. It's sacred. Treat it with respect. It probably shouldn't surprise us, therefore, that the Bible treats the sin of adultery, incredibly serious. 
I mentioned this last week. Adultery is listed right after murder and before theft in the Ten Commandments. Under the Mosaic Law, it was punishable by death. Again, that probably sounds shocking to hear in the age of no-fault divorce. We might wonder how a society could be so barbaric as to consider something as little and insignificant as the breach of a marriage covenant as something worthy of death. But I think once you begin to view it in light of what marriage is according to the Scriptures, then you can at least understand where God is coming from. After all, not only was marriage created as the primary means of projecting and extending the image of God across the face of the earth, meaning that on an attack on marriage is an attack really on God Himself, but a marriage vow is also easily the most significant commitment that one human being can make to another. I mean, when someone takes that vow, what they're saying is that they're agreeing to bind their lives to that other person, meaning that they're agreeing to share in all the consequences of what decisions they make and of what happens to them, either good or bad. Even more than this, they're even swearing to give of themselves, to put the other person first and to seek their good above their own good. In short, marriage is a commitment to give one's very life to someone else. All the best of their time. All the best of their energy, their resources. Listen, their youth. All the choices that one makes with their life and all the consequences that follow, both good and bad, it's all promised to one's spouse on the day of their wedding. So then, to break that vow and to go back on it, by running, running into the arms of another and for perhaps no other reason than for a few moments of pleasure, after receiving that kind of commitment from someone else. It's one of the most hurtful and downright evil things that one human being can do to another. Some spouses are filled with rage when they discover an affair, and it's no wonder. They feel cheated. They feel used. To know that they gave the very best of their life to their partner, only for their partner to take that gift without giving the same in return, it's enough to make the victim burn over the injustice of it all. For many other spouses, it's not anger that they feel, but hurt. They trusted their spouse when he or she said that they loved them. And so they entrusted their life to their spouse on the basis of that love, on the basis of that promise to discover then that their spouse broke that vow and retracted that love. And after they had given so much to their spouse on the basis of that promise, is to feel the greatest kind of betrayal. This is an inherently cruel sin. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that we should punish adultery with death today. There are at least a couple of reasons why I think this penalty should not apply Today, So again, don't misunderstand what I'm trying to say here. I'm not saying adultery should be punished by death. All I'm saying is that maybe the punishment wasn't as barbaric as we like to think. After all, there's nothing civilized about constantly jumping from one mate to another as if there's nothing significant or sacred about human sexuality. And there's nothing noble about breaking your vow for the sake of your inability to control your physical urges. And there's most certainly nothing loving about accepting someone's undying devotion, about accepting their promise to give their very lives to you, only to then, to then turn around and trash that commitment for the sake of, of fulfilling your own selfish pleasures and desires. 
Make no mistake. Adultery isn't just a sin. It's inhumane. It it represents something less than what God made us to be. And it treats people as something less than what God made them to be. Again, it's inherently evil and cruel. So no, maybe adultery should not be punished by death today. But at the same time, I think we can recognize that there's at least some logic behind the consequence to that sin. So great an offense this is to God. Now, the reason why I'm bringing all this up today is because in today's passage, we're going to learn what are the consequences of spiritual adultery. Again, I mentioned this last week. I said it's possible to commit adultery against God only on a spiritual level. And we spent some time discussing what causes that kind of unfaithfulness, which is our idolatrous faith. We believe that something other than God is able to provide us with the things that we truly need, and so we run into this idol's embrace rather than into God's. This morning now we're going to discover what are the consequences to this sort of spiritual adultery. The passage, once again, is James 4, 1 to 10, and we're going to be focusing in on verses 3 to 6. Let's go ahead and read this passage in its context, starting up in chapter 3, the second half of verse 10, and then continuing through chapter 4, verse 10. Again, that's the second half of James 3, 10 through 4, 10. James follows up his warning about the dangers of a restless tongue with this. He says, My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works and the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that Your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealousy, jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us, but He gives more grace? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. There are really two concepts that form 
the background of this letter, and that's trial and conflicts. And those two ideas aren't entirely separated. The one arises out of the other. The conflicts in this church are arising out of the trials. The church is fighting with one another because of the extreme pressure that they're experiencing in these trials. And so as James writes this letter, he writes it in order to address the proper relationship between these two concepts. He's trying to explain why the conflicts are arising out of these trials and just what, therefore, ought to be done about it. We learn fairly early in chapter 1 that James' audience seems to have their own sort of explanation for these conflicts. They have their own opinion about why these conflicts are occurring. And the answer that they've come to is that God apparently wants them to sin. We see this back in chapter 1 when James follows up his exhortation about the benefits of trials by saying, verse 13, Let no one say when he's being tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Again, this is apparently how some people are attempting to explain the, the conflicts that have arisen among them. They're saying that God must be the cause of it. God wants them to sin. He wants them to experience these conflicts. And so He's bringing these trials into their life in order to force their hand. In other words, there's nothing that they can do. You'll remember that I pointed out last week these conflicts are occurring over money. The trials have put this financial strain on the church, and the church is responding by contending with one another over money. The readers think this means there's no way to avoid these conflicts, since God has very clearly intended for them to happen by removing the circumstances that enable these Christians to care for one another and be generous to one another. And, and who can oppose the will of God, right? Right? James immediately debunks this idea back in chapter 1. He says, look, God can't be the reason for your conflicts. And the reason, he explains, is because evil is contrary to the nature of God. Yes, it's true that God may be the source of the trials they're experiencing, but they can't really go around saying He's the source of their conflict. Because God hates evil. And so sin is never going to find its root in God. So God isn't making him sin, them sin. He's not the source of their conflicts. Well, if God isn't the source of their conflicts, then what is? Where's this stuff coming from? Once again, James has already answered this question in part back in chapter 1. There he said that sin always finds its source in the heart of the sinner. James writes chapter 1, verses 14 to 15, But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So sin's origin is inside of us. It's rooted in our own desires. But this still doesn't tell us the whole story, does it? Okay, so, so sin comes from inside of us, but what's the cause of it? What's the ultimate source of it? And specifically as it relates to these conflicts. If God isn't the reason for the conflicts, then what is? I mean, okay, so we understand it's coming from inside the sinner, but how? Why? What's making the, these Christians act this way? James has been, has been building to this answer uh, for some time now. As he's been giving instructions for how to resolve conflicts in the church. Back in chapter 1, for instance, he told his readers that they need to stop resisting correction and instead receive it, because the one who merely hears the word without doing it has forgotten what God has done for them in Christ. 
That's not just instruction for how to resolve conflicts, right? Stop arguing and start listening. It's also an explanation for the source of their conflicts. Their refusal to be corrected indicates an inconsistent application of their faith. God created them to be holy, and so God's people will receive the implanted word instead of spitting it out. In chapter 2, James continues by saying, stop showing partiality with one another, because partiality is inconsistent with the way God identifies us in Christ. Again, that's instruction on the one hand. One way to put a stop to conflicts is to stop showing partiality, but it's also an explanation. The conflicts are arising, once again, out of an inconsistent application of the gospel and what it says about who we are in Christ. Later in chapter 2, James says, not explicitly, but implicitly, he says, start showing mercy to one another, because faith without works is dead. This is another way to put an end to conflicts, by stopping their merciless behavior. But at the same time, it's also an explanation for the conflicts. The merciless behavior is an evidence of their lack of faith. Chapter 3, again, James says, don't rush to become a teacher. Teachers, of course, are instrumental in resolving these disputes, and they're also the ones who are most prone to show partiality and judgment. So once again, this instruction is intended to put an end to conflicts. But it's also an explanation. James says more or less that out of the heart the mouth speaks. That's why he's warning them about becoming teachers, because it's impossible to control the tongue. And so the tongue will ultimately reveal what a person is. This means that if a person doesn't wait until they've changed on the inside, they will inevitably do damage to the church. The common theme in all of these exhortations is that faith, faith, that is to say, what one believes, it will inevitably express itself in one's actions. So then, where is the root of these conflicts? It's not just as simple as saying, well, it comes from inside of you. It's a matter, rather, of saying where it comes from inside of us. And the answer is that it comes from our lack of faith. We saw this last week as James addressed the source of these Christians' conflicts in verse 1. Again, they think the conflicts are coming from God, that God is making them sin. James now finally corrects this line of thinking by saying, verse 1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? He's already established that their behavior is contrary to the character of God. It's contrary to their new identity in Christ. It's contrary to the gospel. So if the quarrels are not rooted in God or in any of the work being done in them by God, then where is it coming from? What's it rooted in? James says it's this. It's their own idolatrous faith. There's something that they trust more than God. And in this case, it's their money. That's why they're defrauding one another. This is why they're viewing one another according to the world's estimation of people rather than by God's. This is even why they have the kind of selfish ambition that drives them to become teachers prematurely. That's because according to the language of chapter 3, they're operating not according to the wisdom that comes from above, but according to the wisdom that is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Now in this morning's passage, James begins to explain the real reason for their troubles. Remember last week I said this passage breaks down into three parts. There's the source of their problems, the reason for their problems, and the solution to their problems. 
And we talked about the source last week. This week now, James shows us the reason. And in this passage, James turns everything on its head. You see, there's a reason why I keep packaging the end of chapter 3 with the beginning of chapter 4, and that's because there's good reason to believe that these two passages combined form the climax of this book. And it's evident in several ways. Where you start to see it come out here in chapter 4 is with the language that James applies here. I mean, if you look here, James is absolutely blistering in his rebuke of his readers. Just look at the way he addresses them here. He says, verse 4, You adulterous people! You sinners, he says in verse 8, you double-minded. James is just hammering them at this point. And the reason, ladies and gentlemen, is because James is drawing our attention here. This is the hinge of the whole book. So, you know, this is, the, this is the part of the sermon where the preacher speeds up his pace, raises his voice, and makes big motions with his hands because he's trying to drive his point home. Because he wants you to understand, this is the idea I want you to leave with today. And the reason why James grabs our attention here is because this is the passage where he finally gets down to explaining the real relationship between these trials that these readers are experiencing and their conflicts. Again, that's the central question that's being addressed in this book. Why has God sent us these trials? And what's the way of escape? Has God done done this in order to bring us into conflict with one another? Is the answer maybe that there is no escape? That we just can't avoid these conflicts since God has designed these trials for the express purpose of making us sin? No, James thunders. He says, don't you get it, you double-minded sinners. The root of your problems is that you are spiritual adulterers and God hates spiritual adultery. That is the reason for these readers' troubles. The source, once again, is their idolatrous faith. We saw that last week. This week, James gets down to the reason for their troubles, and the reason, he explains in verses 3 to 6, is that God hates spiritual adultery. And so God opposes, God resists spiritual adultery. If they won't understand the reason for their troubles, the answer goes back there. Let's read that section of this passage one more time. James says, verses 3 to 6. Actually, I want to start in verse 2. Verses 2 to 6. He says, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the Spirit He has made to dwell in us? But He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We have, of course, spent several months breaking down the meaning of this letter letter together. And as essential as I think it is to understanding this letter to dig in and do that, one of the dangers that you always run in taking so long in studying a letter like this is that you lose sight of the whole. You forget, for instance, things that the author already said 
which can inform what he's saying later on in the letter. Take the very first verse in this book, for instance. It's been a while since we've really dealt with chapter 1, verse 1. But in chapter 1, verse 1, James begins this letter by writing, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. In other words, James is not just writing to Christians here, but to Jewish Christians specifically. And I think that's significant for this morning's passage because if anyone would understand the significance of what James is saying here today, it would be a Jew. I say that because in the Old Testament, Israel is regularly depicted as God's bride. And in like manner, her faithlessness is often depicted as adultery. There are a few different examples of this concept throughout the Old Testament, but I think perhaps the best example is Ezekiel 16. And I say that because although the subject of Ezekiel 16 is the city of Jerusalem specifically and not the nation of Israel as a whole, it still represents the the bride and husband relationship so vividly and it describes God's feelings about spiritual adultery so clearly. So if you would, please turn there for a moment and follow along with me. Again, that's Ezekiel 16. Ezekiel 16. This is an incredibly long chapter. In fact, it's the longest chapter in Ezekiel. So I can't read all of this passage to you today, but just follow along with me as I read some key sections and look for how God depicts this relationship. In verses 1 to 5 of this passage, Ezekiel describes what Jerusalem was like before God had chosen to love her. God describes the city's origins in verse 3 saying, Your origin and your birth are of the land of the, Hitt- of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. Those were the two nations that occupied Canaan at the time of Abraham, the Amorites, and the Hittites. And so this probably describes the city either at that point in history or not long before Abraham came into Canaan. In verses 4-5, to five, God describes how small and helpless Jerusalem was at the time of its birth. He says, And as for your birth... On the day that you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No, I pitied you to do any of the things to, uh, to you out of compassion to you, but you were cast out in the open field, for you are aboard on the day that you were born. So Jerusalem is small and frail here, unloved, uncared for. In verse 6, God takes notice of Jerusalem. He says, And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. Uh, Perhaps this is around the time that Abraham came into Canaan. I tend to think it's actually before, since there's some evidence that the city of Jerusalem was already thriving by the time Abraham arrived there. Either way, at this time, Jerusalem is still young. She's not yet a mature woman. But in verse 8, that begins to change. And as that changes, God finally determines to marry her. Verse 8, God says, When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age of love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. 
So God sees this city, this young woman, and God loves her and enters into a marriage covenant with her. Now, it's unclear just what covenant God is referring to here. I think it's probably the Mosaic. And at this time, it most definitely refers to the time of David's kingship. God goes on to describe how He bathed His bride and washed her and anointed her with oil. He says that He gave her fine cloth and wrapped her in linen and silk and put bracelets on her wrists and a chain on her neck. He even says in verse 13 that she advanced to royalty and that her renown advanced among the nations. That's all descriptive of the renown that came into Jerusalem at the time when David made that city his choice of Israel's capital. God describes that event as the moment when he finally wed himself to Jerusalem by entering into a covenant with her. It was during King David's reign, of course, that God chose to make Israel his permanent place of dwelling. And this intent was then fulfilled when David's son Solomon built the temple and the glory of God came to inhabit that place. So that would appear to be the moment of Jerusalem's marriage to God. So God marries this young woman. He showers her with love and affection. But then tragedy strikes in verse 15. Jerusalem proves herself unfaithful. In verses 15 to 22, God says, But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines and on them played the whore. The like has never been nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you, and made yourself images of men, and with them played the whore. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them and set my oil and my incense before them. Also my bread that I gave you, I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey. You set them for a pleasing aroma, before them for a pleasing aroma. And so it was, declares the Lord God. And you took your sons and your daughters whom you had borne to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your whoring so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? And in all your abominations, in all your whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, wallowing in your blood. This appears to be descriptive of the idolatry that began to occur in Jerusalem during the latter part of the reign of King Solomon and which continued until the time of King Josiah. And at this point, God begins to recount all the ways that Jerusalem turned to uh, to other lovers, although Yahweh dwelled in her midst. He speaks of the city turning to Egypt for protection, and then later to the Assyrians. He repeatedly speaks of Jerusalem using the gifts that He gave her to worship idols. And they also use this money to pay for the protection of these foreign kings. Verse 32, God sees the, the peculiar, uh, the strangeness, I'll say that, of all this, and, and he erupts. He says, adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you give your gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings. So you are different from other women in your whorings. No one solicited you to play the whore, and you gave payment while no payment was given to you. Therefore, you were different. In other words, what's so odd about Jerusalem's promiscuity is that she didn't receive payment to cheat like some common prostitute. Rather, she takes her husband's wealth, which he gave to her, and she uses it to pay other men to come to her. 
They're the prostitutes, and Jerusalem is using her husband's gifts to purchase their services. So what does God think of all this behavior? We see the answer in verses 35 to 42. God says, Therefore, O prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because your lust was poured out and your nakedness uncovered in your whorings with your lovers and all your abominable abominable idols and because of the blood of your children that you gave them, therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, all those you loved and all those you hated. I will gather them against you from every side and will uncover your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness. And I will judge you as women who commit adultery and shed blood are judged. And bring upon you the blood of wrath and jealousy. And I will give you into their hands. And they shall throw down your vaulted chamber and break down your lofty places. They shall strip you of your clothes and take your beautiful jewels and leave you naked and bare. They shall bring a crowd against you. And they shall stone you and cut you to pieces with their swords. And they shall burn your houses and execute judgments upon you in the sight of many women. I will make you stop playing the whore. And you shall also give payment no more. So I will satisfy my wrath on you, and my jealousy shall depart from you. I will be calm and will no more be angry. So do you know what God's promising here? This is about the destruction of Jerusalem. You see, this portion of Ezekiel is written in the interval of time between the Babylonians' capture of Jerusalem and their eventual destruction of that city in 586 B.C. Earlier in Ezekiel, God gives Ezekiel a vision, and Ezekiel warns the people God doesn't dwell there anymore. He's removed His presence from the temple. And now God uses Ezekiel to tell the city, this is how I'm going to repay your adultery. I'm going to hand you over to your lovers, and they're going to strip you bare. They're going to take all your clothes and all your jewelry and all the fine adornment that I gave you, and they're going to leave you there there naked like you were when I first found you. And God explains why why He'll do this in verses 41 to 42. He says, I will make you stop playing the whore and you shall also give payment no more. So I will satisfy my wrath on you and my jealousy shall depart from you. I will be calm and will no more be angry. Are you catching this? God says He's going to remove His protection And he's going to allow Jerusalem's lovers to devastate her so that she might see the goodness of her husband and come back to him. He says he's going to correct her. He's going to discipline her. And then he says after she's returned to him, his jealousy for her will depart and he'll be angry with her no more. So you see, it would seem that God tends to process love much like we do. Or rather, we tend to process love much like He does. When He enters into a covenant relationship with His people, when He vows Himself to them and then showers His people with His love, He expects them to return that love. He expects them to keep their covenant relationship with Him. And when they don't, There's a sense in which he feels cheated, abused, betrayed. And rightly so, because that's exactly what his people have done. God is a faithful faithful husband. He never breaks his promise. And so when his people accept that covenant promise and then turn around and worship idols, they are cheating him. They are betraying him. Our God is a jealous God. And he expects his people to keep their vows. 
And so what does he do when they don't return that affection? We've already seen it here with Jerusalem. He disciplines them until they return and do fulfill their vows. This is important, guys. Listen closely here. He doesn't stop loving them and end the relationship. No, he pursues his bride. Even if that means allowing his bride to feel the consequences of her sin until the time she realizes the blessing of his presence and returns, he still pursues his bride. He sees to it that her affection returns. And listen, he often does this by withholding his blessings from his people. You see this play itself out in Jeremiah 3, 2-3, for instance, when God rebukes Judah for their adultery, saying, again, this is Jeremiah 3, 2-3, He says, You've polluted the land with your vile whoredom. Therefore showers have been withheld, and the spring rain has not come, yet you have the forehead of a whore. You refuse to be ashamed. God tells His people, I sent you drought to warn you, to remind you where your provision comes from, and still you won't turn to Me. In Hosea 4, we see a similar statement. Hosea 4, 9-11, after rebuking the priests of their unfaithfulness, God then turns to the sins of the people, and He says, And it shall be like people like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore but not multiply, because they've forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine and new wine, which take away the understanding. Once again, God says, I will punish this people for their unfaithfulness. By taking away their blessing, I will remind them once again where blessing and life come from. This is the Old Testament background for these Jewish Christians. Now, it's not clear at this point how well these Jews would have understood uh, Christ's church, uh, that His church, His congregation, His ecclesia, as an institution that spans across both Jews and Gentiles. After all, this letter is probably written before James gave his judgment on that matter in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council. But most definitely what these Jews would have understood at the very least is that Christ's church at least incorporates the faithful remnant of Israel. And so these people understand that they are God's people and they understand that this covenant relationship that started with Israel in the Old Testament extends to them in the New. And this means that God expects their love. Just like God began His relationship with Jerusalem by grace and then expected the city to return uh, return love as He promised Himself to them, so also has God entered into a covenant relationship with the Christian entirely as an expression of His grace, and yet He expects their love. Again, the basis of that relationship has nothing to do with the Christian's love for God. They've done nothing to to earn God's love or deserve this kind of a relationship with Him. It's a covenant that's established solely on the basis of God's grace alone. And yet, once this covenant is established, God does expect His people to return His affection. It's like James said back in chapter 1, God brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be the firstfruits of of the creation, meaning that God has saved us to be holy. He saved us so that we might be dedicated to Him in worship. So what's God going to do then when His people, His bride, when His people do not return this affection? These readers already know the answer to that question. The Old Testament has told that story over and over again. He's a jealous husband. 
And so he'll correct his bride, discipline his bride by withholding his blessing. And he'll do this until she repents and returns to him once again. Again, he'll make sure that she does live up to her covenant commitment. And once that's happened, his anger will dissipate and he'll bless her again as he did at first. So again, that's the Old Testament background of this passage. And like I said at the beginning of today's message, that sort of notion of marriage might shock our modern sensibilities. But when you understand the evil of adultery, there's a logic in it. And God is a gracious husband for seeking to have His bride restored from her adultery instead of destroyed for it. Now, as we turn back to James 4, I think once we have that Old Testament background in place, then it's actually very easy to see what James is saying here about the reason for these readers' problems. In verse 1, James explains the source of their conflicts isn't God, but their idolatrous faith. And then in verse 2, he continues. He says, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Now, I have to tell you here, the SV does a pretty poor translation of this verse, unfortunately. And I think in this instance, it can cause you to miss James' point. You see that word, so, there in verse 2? The ESV uses the word so here twice, which tends to indicate a result. And the consequence is it sounds like murder and fighting and and quarreling all arise out of these sinful desires. But the so isn't there in the Greek. Meaning there's actually nothing in this sentence to indicate result. I think the Christian Standard Bible is actually much closer to the sense of this verse when it translates it like this. It says, You desire and do not have... You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. In other words, it's not that you do not have and so you murder, as if murder is the result of not having. Rather, the idea is that you desire, and yet you do not have. You murder and covet, and still you cannot obtain. You understand the point of the verse is not that quarrels arise from these desires. The point, rather, is the other, the other futility of these quarrels. Like they have these desires, and even though they're sinning to obtain these pleasures, even still they can't lay hold of them. It's pointing it to the utter futility of their sinful actions. Just like James said back in chapter 1, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And just like he said shortly before that, desire when it is fully, when it, uh, when it has conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. James' point is that sin is foolishness, remember. It promises great reward, but it brings forth death. That's what he's saying here as well. It's like he says toward the beginning of this section, back in chapter 3, verse 13, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. James is all about doing what is wise. He's all about doing what brings blessing. And his point here, as it has been throughout this book, is that wisdom is always expressed in righteousness, in obedience. So these Christians are sinning. They're hurting one another in order to get what they want. And James turns around and he says, and now look, it hasn't worked, has it? You haven't gotten any of the things you're seeking for in your sin, have you? 
I think of Proverbs 1 where, where wisdom mocks the one who ignored her counsel after calamity has come upon them for their foolishness. That's almost the tone that James strikes here. He's saying, you've rejected God's counsel and now look at you. What do you have to show for it? You've got nothing. James then explains why they have nothing. He says, starting in the second half of verse 2, he says, You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Here James once again goes from the fruit of a sin and traces it back to the root. We've seen him do this so often throughout this book. Here we see him do it again. The fruit in this context is their conflicts. These Christians are sinning against one another in order to obtain their idol money. That's the source of their conflicts in verse 1. From this fruit, James is able to discern at least one of two things about how they're approaching God. Either, number one, they're not asking God for the things that they need. That would be evident from the fact that they're trying to seize their desires with their sin. So their conflicts point to the fact that either they're not asking God for the things they need, or at the very least, even if they are asking, they're very clearly asking with wrong motives. Again, that's evident from the conflicts. Their conflicts indicate that their real hope is in money, not God, because if their hope was in God, then they would still obey even when they didn't have money. So even if they were asking God to take care of them, it's still evident that it's not because they're really trusting God to take care of them. Instead, it's because they trust money to take care of them, and they just see God as the means to giving them that. And do you know what that's like? You know what that's like to come to God with some idolatrous desire and then to ask Him to fulfill that desire. It's like a woman coming to her husband and asking for $100. And when the husband asks why, she says, Oh, well, you know that co-worker of mine that I'm really attracted to? Well, I was thinking that he and I could go on a date together. I bet we'd really enjoy a nice evening alone. So how is God going to respond to this sort of attitude? James gives us the answer in verses 4 to 6. He erupts. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the Spirit He has made to dwell in us, but He gives more grace? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. This is where James really gets down to explaining the reason for his readers' troubles. This is where he explains why they do not have. He starts by pointing out that it's impossible to love both the world and God. For James, remember, there's currently a division in God's order between the rule of heaven and the rule of earth. This is a reality that's reflected in other New Testament writers as well. Um, They all agree that the present world order is understood to be a system ruled by Satan who uses lies and deceptions to disrupt God's order by encouraging man to place his trust in idols. It's like the author of Hebrews says, Satan uses the fear of death to keep man enslaved to lifelong slavery. You know how a couple weeks back I said that demons hope to disrupt the unity of God's order. How James even indicates that you can discern demonic influence by the chaos that's present in the church. Well, this is how they do it. They spread lies about God 
And they use the doubt that arises out of those lies to foster a trust in idols that promotes, quote, disorder in every vile practice. That's what's going on here. The church is in conflict because internally they've come to believe in the power of money over the power of God. They're functioning like the world system because they've come to accept the values of the world system, which James has already told us is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. And so as James reflects on how this idolatrous faith is working itself out in their prayers, he says, this is adulterous. You guys are a bunch of adulterers. Literally, adulteresses, by the way. The word is feminine. So James says, you're all a bunch of unfaithful wives who want to beg money from your husband so you can go and cheat on him. James then explains the problem with this kind of logic. He says again, verses 5 to 6, Or do you suppose that's no purpose? That the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he's made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I should probably point out that this passage is incredibly difficult to translate. In fact, some have said that verse 5 right here is among the most difficult verses to translate in the entire New Testament. And that's due in part to the fact that although James seems to indicate that he's giving a direct quotation in verse 5, there doesn't seem to be any passage in the Old Testament that says that. That being said, I think the problem is partly resolved once you see that the question mark here probably doesn't actually come at the end of verse 5, but actually follows the word grace in verse 6. So the verse would actually read like this. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, quote, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace, question mark, end quote. Like the whole thing incorporates the quote, including the bit about God giving grace. That seems to be what's indicated in the Greek text. And I think that at that point, you can probably surmise that James is drawing a parallel between this quote and the one he gives at the end of verse 6, which is found in Scripture. That's Proverbs 3.34, and it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In other words, I think James means Proverbs 3.34 to be the evidence of what he says in verse 5. He's meaning to say Proverbs 3.34 shows us that God is jealous for the spirit that he's caused to dwell in us, but at the same time, he also promises grace. In other words, James is is anticipating the quote from Proverbs 3.34 when he says that the scripture says in verse 5, and verse 5 is is, uh, his explanation of the implications of that verse. If that's confusing, big picture, what I'm trying to say here is that James is saying that the way God demonstrates His jealousy for us is by opposing those of us who arrogantly reject Him and by helping those of us who turn to Him in humility. And I do use the word us there intentionally. This is not something that applies to those outside of a covenant relationship with God. It applies to those inside of it who God expects to return His affection. James is saying, Proverbs 3.34, should warn you, you adulterous people, God isn't going to listen to your prayers. He isn't going to grant your desires. In fact, if anything, He's going to frustrate them. And that's because He's jealous for you. Again, this is where James really brings it all together. And and by all, I mean all. This is where he takes all the various themes that he's been touching on and hammers the answer to his reader's question home. Why are they suffering these trials? James tells them. It isn't because God wants them to sin. 
No, it's for the opposite reason. Their problem is that they're a bunch of adulteresses and God isn't going to grant them what they need until they turn from their adultery. You understand this? God is making it hard on these people financially. And do you know why? It's because He's jealous for them. And they covet money. And so He's not going to give them money so they can go out and worship that instead of Him. No, He's going to keep them financially burdened until they realize their hope is not in money and turn once again to Him. If they would only turn to God, God would have, reason, would have no reason to keep the trial going. It, it could probably end. He could provide for them and they would have comfort and they could have it because they wouldn't be tempted to worship the comfort that God provided rather than God Himself. He would bless them with His gifts and He wouldn't put any strain on, it wouldn't put any strain on their relationship because they would use such gifts for their intended purpose rather than to purchase the service of spiritual prostitutes. But as it is, God can't do that. And the reason why is because he's jealous for his bride. He will not share her with another man. So then, what's the reason for their suffering? Why are they enduring these trials? According to James, it's the fact that God hates spiritual adultery. It's evident from their conflicts with one another that these are spiritual adulterers, and so God is going to give them no relief until they turn from their spiritual adultery. So yes, there is a way of escape. No, this is not something that can't be resisted because it's simply the will of God for their life. In this instance, at least, James can discern a very real reason for their suffering, and the reason is that God wants them purified from their sin. It's like the author of Hebrews says in chapter 12. He says, The Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. He points out that for the moment, this discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but, quote, later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It's like James himself says back in chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The reason for the trial is their sanctification. And so once they've been sanctified, once the purpose of the trial has been fulfilled, there will be no more reason for it. God will lift the trial, and they'll experience the joy of His blessing. Now, all that being said, I do think I need to add in a word of caution here. Uh, This is the point that James is making in this verse, but I do think we need to note that not all suffering happens as a result of sin, right? The story of Job, the blind man of John 9, even the crucifixion of Jesus himself. These all show us that suffering will sometimes happen for no other reason than the fact that God wants to glorify his name through our obedience and suffering. So don't misunderstand me here. I'm not saying that all suffering happens as a result of sin. But at the same time, that's not to say that no suffering happens as a result of sin either. Just consider the sin of Achan at the destruction of Jericho and how greatly his coveting affected the people of Israel. The Scripture tells us that sometimes suffering does happen as a result of sin. 
So if there's some extended period of suffering happening in your life, it's at least it's at least worth asking, is God doing this because of some unconfessed sin in my life? And then examine yourself to see if there's some idol that you're trying to hold on to, which the trial is attacking. Because if there is, then there's a decent chance that that could be the reason for your suffering. God is meaning to grab your attention. He wants to show you your idol so that you will repent. At this point, I feel like there's so much that we could discuss. Uh, we could talk, for instance, about how to discern whether or not some type of trial you're enduring is for, the disi- is for your discipline or for the glory of the Lord. Or I could spend time providing evidence to this concept that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Because I've got to tell you guys, it's simply all over the Scripture. We could even ask the question, uh, but if God opposes the proud, then why is it that the wicked so often seem to prosper? And we could deal with the fallout of the answer to that question. Instead, all I'd like to do uh, do is this. If you were here last week, I gave you a homework assignment. Hopefully you remembered that. You went home and you did it. I told you to write down three questions. And then I said to take one conflict in your life and on a sheet of paper write down how you'd answer these questions in relation to your conflict. Okay. Those questions were, number one, what do I want right now? Number two, what does the Bible say about this desire? Is it good or bad? And then number three, what am I doing to fulfill these desires? And then I said in today's passage, James would start to provide some insight on what's happening in that conflict. Well, how'd you do? As you run through that list of questions, what would you say is the reason for your problems? I said last week, conflicts are always going to be the result of the idolatrous faith of at least one party, if not both. If your desires are pure, then you might be able to say that you're suffering as a result of God wishing to glorify His name through your obedience. That may be. But are your desires pure? Are your desires pure? Even if you want something good, it's still possible to want it in a disproportionate way that elevates that thing above God. And at that point, it probably doesn't matter whether it's a good desire or not, or even whether or not you're asking for it. There's a good chance that God won't give it to you because He means to discipline you. He may, after all, still give it to you because, after all, He's a gracious God and He's patient towards us, but there's a good chance He won't. So are your desires pure? You can probably tell by the way that you're, way you're addressing them, what you're doing to address them. If you're trying to seize your desires through sin, like James readers are doing here, then your desires are most definitely not pure. So if that's you, if that's what's happening in your conflicts, what do you do? James will give us the answer to that question in the final part of this passage next week. Let's pray.